You're listening to The Crunch with Cam Slater. Right here on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Gary Moller is a nutritionist and an endurance athlete. During the COVID debacle, he popped his head above the parapet and has been lobbying against the therapeutics bill. We discuss an article he wrote for the BFD where he swapped his support from ACT to New Zealand First and do a bit of a deep dive on that, where things are heading now after the election, and discuss the lost opportunities for the freedom movement after the election. He joins me now. Welcome to The Crunch. Well, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. You're most welcome. Now, you wrote an article for us before the election on the BFD, and you've talked about that with Paul Brennan, but I think for this discussion, it might be a good idea to do a bit of, uh, just to revise what what you said back then, and, and then talk about if anything's changed in your point of view since the election that resonates with that article that you wrote for us back then. Well, I guess the question is, where do we start, Cam? Because uh, there are so many things to cover and so many twists and turns. And in addition to that, uh, I've spent the last week or so having a post-election detox. So, uh, yes, uh, the the original goal was that for the so-called freedom movement Mm. and uh, people who were... Uh, felt they were disenfranchised, not represented by the existing political parties. We needed to get representation in Parliament. And to do so, we had to get either MPs into the electorates or else have sufficient party vote to get past 5%. And so those became the criteria, the minimum. Yes. We needed to get past those thresholds And we saw from the Tauranga and Hamilton by-elections and also the Australian uh, state and federal elections that the greatest danger for us was the splitting of the vote, Um, the proliferation of minor parties, all with admirable objectives, wonderful policies, great leaders, but um, uh, in the end, the one percenters. Yeah, and no electorates. So we had to unite the parties. And one of the tactics that I implemented very early on was to, instead of recreating the wheel, is to look at a existing political party that best reflected the so-called freedom movement yeah. and adopt it. Yeah, that's and, a that's a strategy I've talked about often. That yeah. people who are invested in a particular outcome and are very passionate about that. And, and a, a case in point is the Libertarian Party. If you remember back in the, back in the day, sure. you know, Lindsay Perigo um, was involved with that. A number of other people that I respect have been been involved in that. But ultimately, they were a bunch of very uh, energetic politically aware people, enthusiastic, but were largely on the outside of the tent shouting to be let in and were never let in. And I had suggested to them back in the day that they should take their enthusiasm and infect other parties with that enthusiasm and by using political osmosis, inoculate the political parties that they then join and uh, and become 
with their particular brand of libertarianism and freedom. And I saw that as being, you know, in this last election, another valid way of doing that. Now, you had dabbled with trying to do that with the ACT Party, didn't you? Yes. Well, um, well, first of all, uh, just what you were describing there, the socialists or co- communists infiltrating and taking over the Green Party, my mm. Green Party, is a very good example of where an existing political party with all of its uh, established infrastructure and that will simply taken over. Yeah. And um, we, we no longer have a Green Party, do we? We have no. um, an a la New Zealand Communist Party. Yeah, it's a Marxist Maoist <laughs> party um, with, <laughs> yes. with a green tinge in reality. You know, and literally, you know, they're described as watermelons green on the outside and deeply red on the inside. And, and that is true about the Green Party. Absolutely. And uh, I was very involved in the Green Movement mm. and am now deeply disappointed and disillusioned. But that aside, when I looked at the ACT Party, I looked closely at their constitution and it was as if it had been custom written 20 years ago with today in mind, with our needs in mind. It was the perfect party. Yeah. So um, quietly, I rallied my friends, supporters, and we all started joining the ACT Party. And mm. we started that two years ago. Yeah. I made sure that David Seymour was familiar. I copied him in on some of my correspondence and so on because I didn't want to be doing anything underhand. Yeah. Um, honesty, integrity, those are very big important. Pl- big you know, pluses, qualities. but also a, a handicap in politics, if I just quietly add. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, you're right, and we've seen plenty of that just over, well, well the selection, we saw just, plenty of that. Just take um, Jacinda Ardern, remember, you know, she stood there before the 2017 election and told us that she'd never told a lie and believed that um, politicians could uh, have a career in politics without lying. And uh, at the time she did that, I said, well, that was the first lie right there, <laughs> you know, that she had never told a lie. That's right. Yes, uh, it's, uh, well, it certainly was, uh, um, many of those examples, they're certainly real reality checks uh, as to what we have to deal with. But um, uh, Cameron, I've, I'll do my best, my utmost to maintain my own uh, integrity and honesty and not um, uh, not stoop to underhand tactics. Yeah. So. We sought to um, basically join the ACT Party, get involved and change the the culture of it to better reflect, uh, well, what you would call libertarian values, by the way. Yeah. Um, yeah. Freedom. But, yes, that's right. And the, the perfect party for Lindsay Perigo. <laughs> you know, that's, it's funny, you know, because <laughs> David, yes. David Seymour talks a huge game on freedom of speech. Yeah, but but when a whole lot of Kiwis tipped up at Parliament to exercise yep. their freedom of speech, mm. he wouldn't talk to them. Yes, that that was very disappointing. But um, I didn't see that as an impediment to start with. Um, so we uh, we did what we did. We joined the party. The numbers were increasing. It was proceeding very nicely, mm. and then things changed. They changed you got a time frame for that. So you think it was early so this year, not late last year? Um, early this year, things changed for us. Yeah, yeah. So, but over the previous uh, since the the 
the first lockdowns, yeah, uh, the idea of joining an existing party, becoming it, and it becoming us was the strategy. And uh, I was going quietly, and in addition to that, testing the model, and uh, created began creating a website to uh, launch it as a national program. Yeah, and then the Therapeutic Products Act, uh, sorry, legislation was uh, introduced. Yeah, and I took a read of it and went, "Holy shit, this yep. is terrible." This was. We'd already fought it. We'd been fighting it since 2007. I'm talking about the natural health industry. Yes. And on each occasion that the government of the day tried to introduce it, Winston Peters basically had it thrown out. Yep. And at the same time, it became obvious that Winston Peters was back in the political game. Yeah. So we had the uh, those two things coming together, Winston Peters and the Therapeutic Products Bill. And as a matter of honour, we had to go with Winston. Right, that's a significant change to go from ACT to New Zealand First. Well, yes, but um, you see, Winston had saved my bacon, my business, my friends. um, The whole, um, if we are to practice um, natural body heal thyself medicine in New Zealand, if it is to have any chance of survival, it won't with the therapeutic products legislation. It's a it's a death sentence for any doctor, nutritionist, naturopath, herbalist, or um, anybody else who wants to practice um, uh, holistic medicine or healing, might be the better word. The therapeutic products legislation was going to threaten to put all of us out of business and give the citizens of New Zealand only one choice, and that is allopathic medicine and um, basically patent medicines, patent rem- rem- remedies, and nothing else. So, is this uh, is this again, is this bill big pharma fighting back or taking control, even say, more control? Oh, I th- I think it's uh, uh, I've referred to the idea of klepto globalists. Yeah. And it's basically kleptomaniacs who uh, basically have got themselves in a position where they want to own absolutely everything, including uh, humanity, our bodies and souls. That's the way I see it. And they won't stop unless we push back uh, firmly. Yeah, I've I've talked to a couple of people in this industry mm. That uh, you know, one of them's now got out of the industry because he could see where it was going, and he was, mm. you know, selling supplements and pretty good supplements too. I've used them myself, and um, you know, I found them very beneficial. But people, um, they're having their livelihoods destroyed to control things that are actually not harmful, and well, I find it incredible yeah. that we've got a bill or an act in Parliament in place now that seeks to control things that are beneficial to people, not harming people? Well, I've been trying to find um, the paper that was published. About 15, 20 years ago, the coroner in Christchurch took a look at his records over the last 50 years for deaths from taking natural supplements like vitamins, and he found one death. And it was sadly a child that choked to death on a vitamin pill that 
his mother had given him. Right. Now that's the that in fifty years that was the only documented uh, death that could be attributed to a vitamin supplement. Now, the fact is is that uh, vitamins and minerals, when uh, dispensed um, responsibly by people like myself, they're incredibly safe. And uh, if uh, they are to be regulated, they need to have their separate legislation that reflects uh, the degree of risk. Mm. Uh, You can't lump a vitamin such as a vitamin C pill alongside a potent pharmaceutical drug. And they have completely different risk profiles. Yeah, and we need to separate it out. It needs to be uh, there. Needs to be the um, legislation for drugs, big medicine, big surgery, that kind of thing. And then there needs to be legislation that covers um, natural health supplements. And by the way, the Fair Trading Act covers it. <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> you don't need any more. If we make a misrepresentation, then go and complain for yeah. false advertising. You know, and that'll sort it out. That's what that's what happens now. It works fine. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, my experience is that there's a happy medium, isn't there, between yeah, you know, uh, therapeutics, uh, treatments, uh, you know, vitamins, those sorts of things, healthy eating. You know, I yeah. mean, but that can only go so far. I mean, there's some significant issues with healthy eating in New Zealand anyway, because our soils don't contain certain elements um, within our soils and so we've had to add things to foodstuffs uh classic cases iodine being added to salt right or Mm. folate being added to bread um those sorts of things uh you know there's there are significant deficiencies within our soils and therefore the foods that we grow or the or the the meats or the fishes that we eat don't have those nutrients in them because they're just not in in the environment that we are existing well, in. So we need to yes, add to quite, that. Yeah, you're quite right. So, um, for example, um, New Zealand is extremely deficient in selenium. And, mm. in fact, the further south you go, the greater the deficiency. Um, so um, down in the deep south, uh, there used to be a problem with what was called white muscle disease in uh, sheep and cattle. Yeah. Um, the, um, the, 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 the animals would... Um, uh, miscarry, uh, or when they were born, they would live for a few days and die from heart failure. And um, and I, I always say to people, look, if you really want to learn about nutrition, go and consult a rural vet. Yeah. Okay. They they really probably know more than uh, than a, a trained human uh, nutritionist for um, human health. Uh, but. Um, yeah, so uh, it's it's a it's an interesting subject, and I should also point out that um, uh, most of the food we eat nowadays is nutrient depleted. Mm. You have to look at what's put on the soil, um, and that includes all the imported food. Now, it's um, mostly grown in through industrial purposes, where um, the nutrients that are put on the soil are the ones that make the plants grow best. But that's not necessarily what makes human beings grow the best. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I, look, I understand completely. You know, having, yeah. but, having um, gone, we're, gone we're through digressed. that. Uh, 
Yeah. Well, no, no, because um, it's important because it's telling you, it's telling listeners yeah. how you got to the point of wanting to make sure that mm. there were politicians that were aware of the bigger picture uh, on a lot of these things. Uh, and you yeah. came to the conclusion through your own personal experience that Winston Peters had a had a better grasp on the impacts of potential legislation than you know organisations like the National Party or indeed the ACT Party. Well, more than that, uh, Cam, it seemed like come hell or high water, um, all of the incumbent politicians were going to ram this legislation through. And that turned out to be the case, um, uh, despite the uh, thousands of objections. I think it was at least 90% of the submissions were uh, against it. Many of them were very well reasoned as well. They they were serious concerns. Um, But after the um, submissions had been heard, it was only a matter of weeks before they published um, their conclusions and uh, their legislation went through. So you, you're experiencing disbelief, I guess, oh. that this this process happened like that. Now, I'm, I'm far more cynical. I've been involved in politics for, for yeah. a long time, you know, and, and I have to educate people in other particular areas of interest um, that I share, mm. especially around firearms. You know, everyone was saying submit on this bill, and I said, well, there's no point submitting, and, yeah. and they'd said to me, well, why? And I said, because they've already predetermined the outcome. And what they're well, doing they're... is giving you the illusion of consultation. And so you're actually playing their game and you're playing in the system. And then they'll, what they'll do is they'll take all of that consultation. They'll produce a pre-written uh, summary that will say, well, thank you all very much for those opinions, but we're going to do this anyway because we think we know better than you. And that's the problem, isn't it, with politicians? They think they know better than us. Well, yeah, and it even begs the question of somebody else pulling the strings. Um, You know, who are they working for? Are they working for the best interests of uh, New Zealand citizens or are they working for the best interests of some other party? Okay. Mm. That, it, I mean, it does beg that question. And look, Cam, I, I didn't come down with the last shower either. And I I, I saw the, the whole select committee process as being a, uh, as being a sham. Yeah. Uh, and I put in the briefest of interviews. Uh, sorry, the briefest of um, submissions myself. Yeah. Uh, but decided, well, if we... Uh, not in the game, we can't complain. So we put in our submissions and we knew that it was going to be just, you know, brushed over and um, they were going to push it through. They were determined to push it through. We knew they were. Our only hope right from the very beginning, before we put in our any submissions at all, is we knew we had to get somebody into political power who could then um, basically on our behalf throw that legislation out and replace it with something that was more suitable or, in fact, just leave it as it is. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. And yeah, for, well, That's the problem, um, isn't it? Politicians like to tinker and improve things and they very often cause unintended consequences. Well, the, the unintended consequences is that um, 
we have an, an, an increasingly unhealthy nation, and it's going to become even more unhealthy because they are now giving us the only option, and that is to repeat what has failed us miserably since the 1970s, which is um, basically a complete and utter reliance on patent medicines. Okay, oh, this is um, yep. goes against this whole idea of uh, our bodies being genetically programmed to move towards a state of perfect health. And all we have to do as um, health professionals is nurture that, to take a, um, a loving mother nature approach to health, rather than coming in with the let's smash and bro, okay, come in with the big hit, you know, the B-52 napalm bombing raid, where you have uh, the treatment was a success, however, the patient died, okay, <laughs> that, that approach just does not work. We need to nurture, we need to cuddle, we need to use all of those um, nice gentle terms um, food be thy medicine. There are all these sorts of concepts which um, go absolutely against the big farmer approach. But it can take a different approach. I mean, I'll give you an example from my life, right? So mm -hmm. I, five years ago, uh, pretty much mm -hmm. you know, on this weekend uh, coming up will be five years since I had a rather severe stroke. Yeah. Uh, you know, after the first 24 hours when it was really touch and go whether I was going to live or not, I started to think about how I was going to recover from this significant health event. Mm. You know, um, I had to do the obvious things, remove stress, um, you know, do a whole lot of things like that, restructure my life around all of that. But I started researching what causes strokes and what helps prevent strokes. Mm. And I came to, you know, within... And within two days or so, I was following up on these threads uh, and looking at peer-reviewed studies, you know, in reputable scientific papers and organizations that led me to the conclusion, and I haven't been disabused of this notion by anybody yet, that nicotine was the way that I could jumpstart fixing the neuroplasticity in my brain. And that nicotine mm. and nicotine alone, uh, and there's significant studies on this uh, out of the FDA uh, in the United States and, and other places around the world, that nicotine significantly in aids in and is beneficial to developing neuroplasticity and that strokes are caused by a lack of neuroplasticity and that then causes a, a you know a blood vessel to shatter or break which is a, in your brain which is essentially what a stroke is and i was sitting there thinking and so i said to the doctor well can i get some nicotine patches well you're not a smoker well do i have to start to get nicotine patches then no i said i want nicotine patches why and i said well, i need to get nicotine into my body no you can't do that and everywhere i went was no 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 in that first two weeks and look, I don't like smoking cigarettes. They're horrible things. They're awful. They've got all sorts of other, you know, mm. additives and things like that in there. And I very quickly came to the, the conclusion that I should either start smoking a pipe or cigars because the only ingredients in pipe tobacco and cigars is mm. tobacco, nothing mm. else. And then I worked out that smoking one cigar a day, I found a, a study by the FDA in the in the United States 
that said one to two cigars a day has negligible negative health effects on you. Long, yep. A longitudinal study. But smoking one cigar gives you the equivalent of nicotine of one packet of cigarettes. So here I am a week after having a stroke, trying to find ways to get nicotine into my body to help with neuroplasticity, being stopped by the very medical people who ignore mm. these reports that are out there. And so I started smoking cigars, one a day. And people, you know, my doctor said, well, why are you doing that for? I told her, and I said, here's the studies. And she said to me, well, uh, I have to disagree, but I can't argue with the evidence, <laughs> right? So so when people say to me, why do you smoke cigars? Well, I smoke cigars for my health, mm. and uh, I've got empirical evidence to support that. But if you have a look at what the government has done, or all governments have done progressively over you know, back when Helen Clark really started the anti-tobacco thing, there are actually some beneficial things that come from these products, one of which is nicotine. and But all the legislation around smoking and around uh, tobacco products is all about nicotine. But nicotine's mm. not the problem. Mm. Right? It's everything else that's, that's around. The, nicotine's the addictive element that's contained within those products. And so they focus on that and ignore the beneficial aspects. So, you know, well, my little journey was about diet and health and all of those things. But as part of that, I, I, I came to the conclusion I needed to start smoking cigars. <laughs> well, <laughs> well it, it is. It's, it's really fascinating. And you raise a couple of, uh, a couple of points here. There's increasing evidence that nicotine may be beneficial for offsetting some of the side effects from the mRNA COVID jab. I don't know whether you're aware of that. And the other point, Cam, which I think I must emphasize, is that nowadays is a time when uh, it is the most wonderful time for us to be alive. Thank God for modern medicine. Now, but we must clarify Thank God for modern emergency medicine. Right now, at this time, is the best time ever in history to suffer an acute medical event or accident to be run over by a bus um, to have a stroke, for example, because of the modern emergency medical treatments that are available. Yeah. Um, But here's the problem. When it comes to preventing or rehabilitating after these events, when it comes to preventing diseases related to modern lifestyle, poor nutrition, exposure to toxins, aging, stress, those sorts of things, modern medicine, allopathic medicine, is a complete and utter failure. Okay? We must distinguish between... Uh, medicine applied to those um, so-called degenerative or lifestyle or aging-related conditions and being run over by a bus or suffering a massive heart attack or a stroke. Well, I mean, you know, we we don't have to look very far, though, to see where modern medicine or modern advice has failed us. Because if you uh, look Mm. at society in New Zealand pre-1950, we were pretty fit and healthy. There wasn't a huge obesity issue uh, mm. amongst New Zealanders, and yet we have an you know they call it an obesity epidemic now. 
and it, and it always makes me laugh because you can't catch obesity, right? It's not it's not it's not a virus. It's not a bacterium, right? Mm. It, it's it's a simple fact that you've <clears throat> oversupplied your body with energy, and it's decided to do what it, our body is designed to do when it has abundance to store some of that energy for use at a later date because we're probably going to go through some periods of uh, of some you know, scarcity. So the human body, we, we're fighting against evolution, really. The human body is designed to do yeah. that. And so we've got this obesity, they call it an obesity em- epidemic. And by saying it's an epidemic means that theoretically the solution is simple, take a pill or do something like that. But the reality is you actually need to expend more energy than you're putting in. <laughs> to, to avoid obesity, and but nobody's prepared to use that as a as a solution. Now you're a nutritionist, so you know exactly mm. what I'm talking about here. It's the type mm. of things, and I have done a bit of research in this. And correct me if I'm wrong, but but it seems to me that the food pyramid that started to be promoted in the 1950s is probably the cause of the obesity epidemic because we're loading up on the very things that are that the human body finds toxic and not eating the things that we actually need to do and and I've always found doing the opposite of the food pyramid that the medical professionals push has actually worked better for me in that I eat more protein uh, and eat more raw foods and not as many processed foods and much less grains or, you know, wheat and things like that, that is right at the top. And that they tell us that that's what we should be eating the most of. Um, And and the reverse of that is actually true. And so you lose weight faster if you eat a high protein um, diet than you would if you ate, say, you know, a high gluten diet. Yes. It's a little bit more complicated, but you're dead right. Um, And uh, look, I've got, Dr. Kellogg's uh, home medicine book. It's a huge volume, like yep. a big Bible, which um, is a family heirloom that's been passed down through the generations of Mollers. And uh, that was published yeah, about 1890. Yep. And Dr. Kellogg uh, founded the Sanitarium Health Food Company. Yep. Now, it is said that uh, somebody came up with the idea of cornflakes. Yeah. And uh, probably went to James Kellogg and said, hey, doc, you know, I've got this. What do you reckon? And uh, the doc experimented with it and he came up with a use for it, apparently, allegedly. And uh, that was um, that it was used as a remedy for young or for unmarried men who could not control their urges. (laughs) And um, so uh, not particularly successful uh, then. (laughs) Well, if mum and dad, uh, you know, caught Johnny doing something uh, mm. before he was married, um, he was sent off to Dr. Kellogg. And what Dr. Kellogg did was he fed them cornflakes to control um, those uh, urges. Right. Now, um, so that that was um, at Dr. Kellogg's sanatorium. Yeah. Okay. Now, somewhere along the way, they must have had another conversation which said, hey, you know, these are pretty tasty and are pretty popular, um, so what do we do with it? Well, somebody came up with the uh, the idea, breakfast being the most important meal of the day. But, of course, um, like I, I can remember, um, you know, having to get up in the morning. Um, I'm a child from the 1950s, and um, uh, the first person out of bed 
had to stoke the, the coals in the coal range. She couldn't cook the porridge. She couldn't cook the bacon and eggs or anything until you got this, the, um, the, the range um, roaring away with yep. a fire. Yep. The other thing is um, I put myself through university by milking cows. That was getting up at 4 o'clock in the morning. And so I never ate until about 9 o'clock in the morning. Uh, the day it was a lot of energy for five labor. hours. Mm. Yeah, hard physical labor um, without even a glass of water. Now, if you look at the islands, um, you look at Samoa, where my partner, um, uh, her mum and dad came from, okay, people got up before the crack of dawn and often walked several kilometers up to the fields to weed and to harvest the taro and so on. Others would be on the reef fishing and then others would be preparing the fire um, to be able to cook the meal. And by the time everything was gutted, prepared and dressed and so on, and then put into the uh, into the into the ground with the rocks, nobody had a meal until midday. Mm. So breakfast was never the most important meal of the day. It is a modern construct. And its purpose is to sell convenience foods that don't require cooking. Okay. And, loaded, and most of them are loaded with sugar. And of course, it's all uh, yes, uh, because it's so easy. You can you can put um, cornflakes in a packet, and then all you have to do is add milk and a Bob's your uncle. Okay, mm. so that's how it came about. Now, um, more recently, um, particularly if you're dealing with young and active people. Um, the message being sent out to nutritionists was um, that you need to fuel up every two hours. And what better way of doing that than to buy yourself some muesli bars, especially the high-protein ones, okay? Yeah. But again, it's a sugar hit. So um, we've been basically um, brainwashing people to believe that every two hours they've got to have a snack. Now. Yeah. Breakfast, morning As tea, said, lunch, uh, afternoon tea, dinner, yeah. supper. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And um, and if you look at the pioneering New Zealanders, you know, your Colin Meads and your Lahores and all of them, they are, and I even think of my like my grandparents and the men and the women in my um uh in, in my family, they're all big, strong, rock chawed uh men and women. They were strong okay? and fueled by protein. Well, yes, and they didn't snack in between, and they didn't even start with breakfast. Yeah. Um, you know, we've been fed a load of cobblers, um, and the end result is that um, it's almost as if the whole of New Zealand is pre-diabetic and obese. Okay? And yeah, um, look, You look at all of those things that you're talking hmm. about for breakfast and lunch, and, you know, they yeah. all involve breads, wheat. Yep. All of these sorts of things, right? Uh, you know, I've noticed cutting wheat out of my diet as much as yep. possible. I mean, even having uh, oat-type breads. Uh, mm. and, you know, and, and I look back on my youth, mum used to make us, in the, especially in winter, used to make us porridge, of course, which is rolled oats. Now, mm. I've found that if I have wheat in my diet, I end up with a crook gut. Uh, I put on weight quite quickly. But if I reduce that wheat down to a manageable amount and limit when I have that, and that is usually 
at breakfast in the form of you know a couple mm. of slices of toast, but I'm using oat-based breads now rather than wheat, that my weight just falls off because I don't add any more of the wheat and the things that go with that, like sandwiches and all of those things. We send kids off to school with with bread, you know, and and sugary stuff that's based around all of that. And they're leading a sedentary lifestyle. And we worry, wonder why they're putting weight on and they're obese because we, we're yeah. actually filling them up with the wrong sort of stuff at the wrong time. So there are there are a couple of things there, Cam. Um, one of the most uh, effective health measures that somebody can do diet-wise is simply to reduce or eliminate grains. Yeah. Um, and in particular, wheat and rice. Yeah. Um, oats might be a little bit better, okay? And there are other grains as well. But to move away from uh, the most industrially produced uh, grains would be a good move because by default, all grains, uh, carbohydrates, are ultimately sugar. Yeah. And so um, by default, if somebody just simply cuts out those primary sources of grains, uh, they are reducing their sugar intake. The other thing is, is that sugar is pro-inflammatory. Sugar yes. feeds bugs like yeast, um, viruses, bacteria, um, and so on, parasites. So if you um, eliminate um, uh, carbohydrates, um, primarily grains, by default, uh, you are going to become healthier. And end up with more energy too. I've found that I've had more well, energy by cutting yeah, those course. grains out. And you know, I, yeah. I'm, I'm not. Go, I don't go to extremes. Like I prefer to eat wild type rices. You know, ancient yeah. type rice rices rather than you know your jasmine. Bas- well, there's another. There's another factor as well. Industrially produced grains tend to be sprayed with glyphosate. Right. Okay, and glyphosate is a herbicide. It is a terrible poison. I've written a few articles on the subject, and uh, and it's if you, if somebody cuts out their commercially produced uh, non-organic grains, by default they will be reducing their exposure to glyphosate. Yep. Glyphosate is used as a crop ripener. Just go into Google and type glyphosate and crop ripener and be prepared to be shocked at what you see. And when glyphosate combines with gluten, it effectively renders the gluten into a toxin. Now, that might explain why somebody with a gluten intolerance can go to the south of France or Spain and eat the pastries yeah. and not have a problem. Um, that That is one of the theories in that it's not necessarily the gluten that is the main issue. It is the gluten when it's combined with glyphosates. Well, this is... You know, we've mm. gone we've gone from talking about politics to talking about <laughs> diet and those things, right? <laughs> We're digressing. No, but there's a re- there's a reason for that, right? So, yeah. and and let's just touch back on the nicotine and the diet, right? Yeah. So, I'm not vaccinated for COVID nineteen, right? Mm. 
I've never worn a mask. I've never practiced any of the rules and regulations, and I was never locked down. I did whatever I wanted, right? And I'm admitting that openly on radio that I did whatever I wanted. But I've also never caught COVID. And, you know, I was smoking cigars once a day during the lockdowns. In fact, it was delightful because I had the time. It takes a long time to smoke a cigar. It takes over an hour for even a small one to smoke. And I'm picking that that nicotine is is what was stopping me catching COVID when everybody else was having it. And then with the diet that I was having, which also included supplements, including zinc, uh, vitamin B, uh, vitamin D3, uh, and vitamin C, on top of the nicotine, was what stopped that. And then we talk about the diet. And now we get to where I'm heading. Mm. Aren't we fighting our own DNA by following these prescriptive solutions you know, to fight obesity for one, for just for one, that we're fighting our own DNA and the own our own ability of our body to fight things off naturally. Mm. And you've written an article about this in particular. Yes. Then that's what what interested me to get you on on this show. That melding of politics and understanding our DNA and where that's going from. And you've written an article, and you've called it. Safeguarding Life's Sacred Code, Protecting DNA and Our Precious Planet, which is on your website, GaryMoller.com. Mm. And I found that really fascinating where you talk about DNA as being a sacred God script. And now we're talking about why we need to be looking at uh, this genetic engineering, genetically modified organisms, the mm. therapeutics bill, the all of these things are combining to ankle tap us and take us away from what you call as the God script, the sacred God script yes. of DNA. Yes, and this is one of the reasons why opposing the therapeutic products bill, which is now legislation, is now, now. Yep, I believe that the reason why. They had to get this legislation through is because it is the mechanism for the fast track approval of novel new medicines, including mRNA or gene uh, related therapies. Yeah. And that's that's why they they were going to put it through whether the public wanted it or not. It had to go through. There is uh, now an infrastructure in place for the production of millions of doses of mRNA drugs in New Zealand, and there are research projects galore around the country and our universities and so on, all geared up to produce mRNA drugs for every imaginable plant, animal and human use in New Zealand. And that's the thing, isn't it? They're going to apply this first to animals and to plants, which means that we will then be ingesting these modified yes. organisms, whether we yeah. like it or not. The the person to talk to on this is Dr. Guy Hatchard, who um, we all know well. Basically, we share our DNA with every other living organism yeah. uh, that we know. Uh, we talk to our environment, and we principally uh, talk to our environment through our food. And uh, 
we need to be extremely careful because we share our DNA and plants share their DNA with us, plants and animals, any anything, even possibly through inhalation, okay? Um, we can't separate ourselves from uh, basically whatever that life force is out there, okay? I'm not religious, but there is some kind of life force. And uh, yes, um, DNA seems to be the closest to us understanding what it is, but there's something far greater. Uh, all life is one, and we must be very careful. And if you look at all the great religions, uh, one of the uh, common messages, overriding messages, is that man should never be so arrogant as to think he can play God or be God. It always ends in disaster. And here is the ultimate of man attempting to play God. And we don't understand what we are doing, but we know that whenever man has attempted to play God, they have failed terribly. And so my, my, my message is don't go down there. And especially we haven't had the opportunity for a free and open discussion of the science and the ethics of it. Where's the conferences? Where's the debates? Okay, it's just being foisted down our throats. Well, we saw this during the COVID pandemic where no debate was even entered into. If you tried to debate uh, yeah. the merits of uh, compulsory vaccination, and mRNA vaccines and everything, you were labelled a conspiracy theorist, a cooker, a nutter. You know, we would you were demonised if you said, well, hang on a second here. And, you know, yep. I can remember when they were talking about these mRNA vaccines, a very good friend of mine, one of Cam's buddies who's, on, you know, regularly on, on the radio, would say to me, he said to me, Cam, we don't want to be doing this. He said, I studied mRNA uh, when I was at university, uh, this is a mm -hmm. fundamental change to our core code. And I said, whoa, 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 whoa. I'm struggling to understand this, as he explained it further. Mm -hmm. And I said, I need an analogy that, that the everyday person can understand. And he says, well, Cam, you're into computers. This is like somebody designing a, a piece of code that, that they claim will run flawlessly on every computer that's ever been built by man irrespective of the language that was used to build the you know the instruction code of that original computer or the latest computer you've got these people are telling you that they've written a piece of code that is universal to every single computer and your your body is a, is your own unique computer that's made up of dna and mrna strands and instructions and they're saying here apply this piece of code to your computer and it's going to work flawlessly. And I said to him, that's nuts. It can't possibly work. My DNA is different from yours. You're short and fat, and I'm I'm not so short and slightly thinner. Um, <laughs> that's our genetic makeup. You, you yourself, Gary, you're much thinner than I am, you know, so that's perhaps your DNA, perhaps you're helping your DNA by your diet. But everyone's hmm. different, and yet we were told, here's this thing that everyone can take. And it's and worse. They said it was safe and effective. 
yeah, completely unsafe and completely ineffective. Uh, we've we've got to realise that it's now uh, Orwellian doublespeak. Well, whatever is uh, the truth is, in fact, the lie. Well, it's yeah, I mean, that's the thing is, it, it really is. It's almost yeah. like they picked up uh, 1984 from George Orwell and didn't take it as a warning, which is what he intended, yeah. right? Uh, took it as a manifesto or yep. an instruction book and then melded Yeah, so they use a manual. Yeah, yeah. they use a manual. Yeah. And then they yeah. said, well, we need some other things here to make it more palatable. So then they picked up uh, Mein Kampf. And and also the writings of <laughs> of Goebbels, right? And mixed it all together yeah. and gave us this safe and effective. Uh, if you if you yeah. get if you take these um, vaccines, you won't get sick and you won't die. Those were the exact words that Jacinda Ardern used. And politicians yeah. all around the world, Joe Biden, uh, many many others, said you if you take these vaccines, it'll stop you getting COVID. Well, that's not the case. Well, uh, and in fact, it'll start you getting COVID. <laughs> it does the opposite as far as I'm concerned. And uh, by the way, um, uh, the the things you took like uh, zinc, especially if it's combined with uh, other nutrients which uh, help to pull the zinc into your cells, yeah. you probably caught COVID, but you probably never knew it. You see, um, if, it, if I did, it was so really, mild it didn't it yeah. didn't even notice. Well, it's really yes, it's it's not a case of whether you catch a disease or not. Um, look, I, I've been exposed. I, I I would guess to every bug under the sun, including every herpes infection you can think of. But it comes down to not so much whether you catch things. It comes down to symptoms. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, whether you have um, mild symptoms or whether you have life-threatening symptoms. And this is where having um, uh, a robust body through good nutrition, good lifestyle, sleep, you know, stress management, etc. cetera, um, these, are the, these are the keys, okay? It's not about whether or not you catch the disease, it's how your body manages the disease and ultimately develops a degree of immunity, resistance to further infections. And that's what we should be focusing health on. Now, um, by the way, let's just digress a little bit. Again. <laughs> you were talking about, <laughs> this is wide-ranging, uh, you're talking about the 1950s, okay? Mm. Now, I can remember the 1950s, and there was a health crisis. We really did have a post-war health crisis. Now, um, our wise and very practical forefathers, my my parents and my grandparents, they came up with the solutions. And by the way, politicians were not career politicians back then. No. They were people who had been successful in their own right, who then um, felt it their civic duty to give back to society. Okay. Yeah. Um, now, so what did they do? They embarked on a... Um, basically a public health program, putting in sewerage. I can remember when the sewer line was dug in and we got rid of the outhouse, okay? Mm -hmm. um, they put in water treatment, uh, reticulated water. Um, they came up with the Sunshine School design, which yep. um, is a fascinating um, concept. It's all um, vitamin D, nurse. 
Yeah, yeah. there was a dental nurse in just about every primary school. Um, um, the local farmers were contracted to supply a half pint of fresh full cream milk for every primary school child. Mm. Um, postage stamps were used to fund health camps. And uh, we had the Plunkett nurse and so on. Now, those if you think of those, those are um, all pr- um, primary health uh, investments. New Zealand went from a health crisis to being within the, the top three or four ca- uh, countries in the world for health measures. We were competing with Finland, Sweden, mm-hmm. Norway, for child health, for being the healthiest place to raise a child. Then, from the mid-1970s, we began our love affair with um, patent medicine. Mm. And uh, we were the second country in the world, um, around 1980, somewhere around there, to allow direct-to-customer television advertising of pharmaceuticals. The United States was the first. Yeah. And um, we um, have uh, deteriorated now to the point where we're competing to be in the bottom three in the developed world for health. Mm. Okay. We've gone the complete opposites. It's a disaster. And um, and what this... Um, uh, uh, current setup is is that they are now not just asking us, but they're forcing us to do more of the same, more of what has failed us to spend more money on uh, basically patent medicines when they have failed us terribly. We need to go back to the basics of investment. By the way, I forgot to mention as well the state housing program. Hey, the government back there, they built suburbs and suburbs of the most beautiful modern homes. Mm. Okay. And we've had a government that seemed to struggle to build one. Yeah. I'm exaggerating, but you get the idea. No, I mean, yeah, hey? I've, I've used the <laughs> analogy that if you sat them in a room full of Lego, they couldn't build a house. You know, so... I mean, well, you're exactly right. We've had these politicians, and I'll call them academic politicians, right? Mm-hmm. They're, they're, they're book-learned uh, you know, politicians who think that if you just apply more money or if we um, order uh, people to do things, that it will just happen. You know, and a case in point is KiwiBuilt, where Phil Twyford mm-hmm. said, oh, we'll get this happening. But there's no way that the government had the capacity to build a house, even a single house, uh, that they were going to have to rely on the private sector, but there was no connection mm. between slogans, election slogans, and the reality. And and that's what I fear about MMP and where we're heading. And, and I detect that's what you fear as well, which is why we've kind of started this discussion, you and I, mm. is you, know, you, you wanted to see New Zealand first come in because you felt they had good solutions but we're sitting there with National Party being dominant, aided by the ACT Party, which is, you know, they're not too dissimilar in their global outlook on things, seemingly mm. beholden to solutions that aren't solutions. And you've got this bulwark of New Zealand First there, hopefully 
who can say, no, we, we need to pull out of this. We need to stop this. I mean, there's some drop-dead dates with the therapeutic spills, isn't there? Yeah, if we don't pull out by the 1st of December, then we're, we're kind of screwed. Yes, uh, you're right. We're, we are. And our our big hope, what we did hope for, um, Cameron, was getting sufficient New Zealand First MPs yeah. and other independents with similar views into Parliament so that we held the balance of power. And one of the negotiable, well, there were a number of things we want to negotiate. And uh, one of them, of course, is the repeal of the Therapeutic Products Act. Yeah, it needed to go. If that if that was the only thing to go, that would have been a, a wonderful victory. There also needed to be other things, of course, like a proper, free, and open review um, investigation into the COVID response. Yeah, uh, including the this whole issue of vaccine injuries. Um, we needed to, and we still need to have this debate about the um, science and the ethics of um, gene therapies. Yeah, that's that. That is crucial. But unfortunately, because um, of uh, big egos, hubris, arrogance, and egos, ego. Yeah, we we are, we're down uh, several MPs on where we should be. Yeah, um, because. Um, what should have happened is that the parties that were obviously the one percenters, mm-hmm. this needed to a decision needed to be made needed to be made about two weeks before polling booths opened. That um, the one percenters needed to honourably step aside. Look, um, Cameron, I relate this to like running a marathon. Um, yeah. I've run many marathons. My sister went to four Olympics uh, running marathons. And um, even though it's an individual competition where there's only one winner, and it can be one winner out of a thousand, you know, most of us uh, are condemned to being losers in life, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't enthusiastically participate. But here's the thing, (laughs) okay? It's actually a cooperative effort where, um, so when when the marathon starts, and you, you just watch any big marathon, they run together, they help, they pull each other along, they assist, they might even share a drink amongst each other. But when you come then to the last, there comes a point where there's a crunch point where you say, okay, there's now going to be one winner. And and people then make their moves, okay? And there's a winner. And at the end, you congratulate and you shake hands for – a race well run, a, a race well fought. Now, the problem with uh, that happened here is that um, come hell or high water, those one percenters were not going to concede that they'd lost the race. Yeah. Okay. They weren't. They, and they fact, ignored polls. They, they ignored polls. They ignored well, everything. They went a step further and they started to try and trip Okay, you just imagine running in a running race where you're getting towards the end and it's becoming obvious who's winning. So what do you do? You say, go for it, Freddie. Go for it, Cam. Okay, you've got it here, mate. You know, go. Or you trip them up. Okay, give you a foot trip. Right. And that's what they resorted to. It was obvious two weeks out that Winston was our only hope. New Zealand first. Winston. Okay. Yeah. So. Yeah, sure. The media went nuclear 
on Winston. David Seymour right. went and nuclear it, on Winston. Yes, they did. And But what was unforgivable, that was understandable because, hey, um, Winston was going to be a threat to their $55 million slush fund anyway. Yep. Um, but... The other, but what was unforgivable was the other members of the so-called freedom movement. They started to play dirty, okay, with mm. um, innuendos, with allegations, which, um, uh, in my view, bordered on being uh, defamatory. Yeah, and with the result is that they they were like um, a bunch of captains of um, ships in a convoy, and one by one they're being torpedoed and they're going under. And they were saying, don't saying to the crew, you know, and the passengers, don't worry, uh, we're not going under, you know, there's going to be a miracle. By the way, we're going to get 2 million votes. Don't know where they're going to come from, but we're going to get 2 million. You know, we had all this. And so the end result is they not only took themselves under, but they put Everybody, well, not everybody, but they put so many other people off. There's already enough damage being done by the mainstream media without them adding to it. Yeah. So, you know, our it's goal, a tragedy, really, we, when you think about it. It is. We had to get the maximum number of votes. We needed to get MPs in Parliament. That was the goal. It was not about stroking egos. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, no, 100% was, agree with you. It and that, that was what I was trying to educate people yeah. with my show. That, yes, you know, yeah, talking and, to and all of these different people. You did a damn good job, Cam. You did a oh, yeah. good job. But... We've just got to try, you know. And, and yep. you know, I've been involved in politics all of my life. And, and I go by my gut feel. And, you know, I mm. also base it on empirical evidence, is you can't deny evidence. And that's what I said yes. to Matt, Matt King, you know, let's do a poll. You know, if the poll shows you're going to come forth, well, then will mm. you just give up? And he said, no, I'm not coming forth. I'm going to win. Well, guess where yeah. he came? Fourth, <laughs> right? Which is what the poll, yeah. there were three polls done in Northland and every single one of them said Matt King's coming forth. And that's mm. exactly where he came, but yet he carried on. And Democracy in New Zealand carried on on the basis that Matt King was going to win Northland. Ultimately, yeah. you know, with hindsight, which is always 2020, it was dishonest. The same as the claim we're going to get there by winning, you know, uh, Justin Southland. There's enough votes there to get one uh, to get to five percent of everyone in Southland votes for us. It was dishonest. It was demonstrably false. And now if we see, you know, over the past weekend, Liz Gunn saying, "I was just joking about the two million votes." No, she wasn't. Yeah. I saw the video. She was deadly serious. I don't know whether it was a delusion or if it was a deliberate falsehood, but but it led people to believe in something that didn't exist. Mm. And and if that one percent from NZ Loyal had gone New Zealand first, and that one percent from Democracy New Zealand had gone to New Zealand first, mm. there would now be three additional MPs in the house in the form of uh, Kirsten Murphitt and Lee Donahue. Yep. You know, and 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 a couple of others that were clearly freedom candidates who now are relying yes. on special votes and may or may not get there, and that's a tragedy, an absolute tragedy that could have been avoided. Yeah, what, what one of the things that uh, one of the rather despicable tactics that was used, uh, Cam, was this um, myopic focus on Winston. 
Mm. What was uh, constantly ignored was the fact that um, behind Winston was a dedicated team of extremely competent people and a um, and an impressive set of um, manifesto or um, election promises. Mm-hmm. Okay, many of those people you mentioned a few names are people who were our friends. Okay, friends of Liz Gunn, of Matt King, and so on, and um, they let them down. They betrayed them. Mm. They that that was that was the thing. They they said no way are we going to go with Winston. Winston can't be trusted. You know, blah blah blah. Yeah, and, the National Party and totally lines. ignoring the team, the team that was backing Winston. Yeah. Okay. And that Look, was, I've that seen was it wrong. for years. You know, the National Party spent thirty years trying to destroy Winston Peters. Yes, right. And that, and those are the exact lines that you use. That's what the National Party has been saying, and National Party mm-hmm. adherents have been saying about Winston Peters for thirty years or more. And the these freedom uh, parties took up that cudgel and used. I mean, it, I was even su- uh, subject to a rather defamatory mm-hmm. and outrageous attack. Uh, by a supposed media organisation that described what that what I was doing to educate voters was a psyop, and that I was a creature yep. of the National Party, just outrageous uh, allegations. Um, but that caused damage. That caused damage to, as you say, the, those those really well, fine people that that could have been yeah. in Parliament sitting there working out how and we could I, do that. I feel really um, sad for the people who um, were let down by their leaders. Those leaders, and some of them uh, I've always regarded as friends, um, but they may not, uh, I'm still their friend, but they may not (laughs) think of me as their friend anymore. But that's that's the way it is. But um, they need to now be eating humble pie. They need to be coming to us and they need to be apologising. That's the, that's the sad thing, yeah. Gary. Well, you know, as they, they, they won't, they won't do that um, yeah, because I, of I know. because of the narcissism, because of the hubris, because of the arrogance, and it's it's it, yeah. you know I describe it as a tragedy, and it is. Um, it was a missed opportunity, and well, you know, we've just got yeah. to work harder. Now. Um, uh, the well, one of the things that I've learned, one of the hardest words, uh, first of all, is to say no. Yeah. But what's even harder is to say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I got it wrong. Now, what can I do to make the best of uh, what might be a bad thing? Okay. That's really hard to do. But I think um, with practice, it actually becomes easier. And because I practice that a lot nowadays. So where do we go from here? What I think, uh, this is what I want people to do. We need to now think three years ahead. We need to think about the next election. Now, oh, can I make one point? Yeah. Because of this lost opportunity by overinflated, uh, bullheaded egos, people are dying. People are being maimed. Okay? Yeah. We have to now face another three to four years before anything changes. And in fact, things may get worse. Mm. People are dying. And that's one of the things that um, 
that was completely overlooked when these people said, no way, I'm going to push on, even though I've only got 1%. You know, we're going to get the 200,000 votes, the 2 million, sorry, 2 million votes, and so on. They are costing people's lives. People are being maimed because it allows these lies to continue. We must not forget that, okay? I'm with you 100% on that. Yeah. Now, it means... Um, nothing's going to change for another three years and probably another year after that. At least. At least. So, um, And this is is the point I was making to these smaller parties, right? The ACT Party has been in existence for 35 years. New Zealand First has been in existence for 30 years. That's how long it takes you to get to a credible force in Parliament. You yes. can't expect overnight that you'll get 5%, 6%, 10% overnight. It is a intergenerational journey, and not one single one of those leaders is prepared to embark on that intergenerational journey because yeah. it requires discipline, it requires mm-hmm. patience, and it requires dedication, and none of them have that. Sadly. Yes, it takes – you're right – that was one of the um, reasons for uh, associating with an existing political party, even if we yeah. didn't completely like what was there. That's right. There's no point in trying to re- recreate an incredibly complex machine. Um, it's not just a wheel. It's, a political not, it's party. not easy. It's complicated. It. It's very complicated. Yeah. Yes, it takes time to build the infrastructure um, and to weed out the pots as well, by the way. Mm. Okay, yeah. yeah. So the the idea which we need to continue is to say, okay, New Zealand First has welcomed us with open arms. Yeah, there's yeah. been no um, there's there's been no subterfuge or what have you. But okay, you know, a point you raised before about the ability yeah. to say sorry that was the first interview, one of my first <laughs> shows, right? I had with Winston Peters. Yeah. I said, you know, you were part of the government that brought in these mandates. And he acknowledged that he was wrong. Mm. He said that it was, uh, you know, that it, knowing what he knows now, he wish he hadn't done that. Mm. And then I, in a second interview that I had with him, I said, you know, do you remember Alan Martin used to have the LV Martin ads? And he would always yes. say, it's the putting right that counts. And Winston said, yep, yeah. and that's that's why... I'm back. That's why I've come back into the parliament so that I can right the wrongs. Yeah. And I believe him. I've seen the resolve in him uh, that he knows that he was wrong. He said it out loud, which not very many politicians do. Hmm. And now it's up to him to grow New Zealand first. And it's up to us and people like the audience here on Reality Check Radio need to get behind that, become yes. involved in those political... Don't sit back and expect someone else to do it, right? Go and join those political parties. Go and join the National Party and change them one branch at a time, one electorate at a time. Go and join the ACT Party and change yep. them one branch, one electorate at a time. And go and join New Zealand First and power them up so that they aren't a party that disappears after 30 years, that they go on and they're there for another 30 years. And they are looking for the benefits for New Zealand, not for other countries. 
Yes. Uh, so uh, this this is uh, really good stuff. We become the party, mm. and the party becomes us. Correct. And if uh, if you don't become part of the party, if you don't get involved, and it ends up not representing your views, then don't complain. Yeah. Yeah. That's, if, uh, that's if the If your involvement in the electoral process is you go and vote yeah. once every three years, well, then well, you're not trying hard enough. Yeah. I, I actually think that um, uh, not being involved, well, the real power in politics actually happens at the party level. We need, to, we need to be involved there. Uh, the, the casting of the votes is like going to a Turkish restaurant and expecting French to be served. Yeah, okay. And complaining that you, there's no baguettes on the table. Yeah, I know. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Where's if the you croissants? Want, You're at a Turkish yeah, restaurant, you, but I want croissants. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, if you want a party to provide you with the kinds of policies and to deliver on them, you've got to get involved at the party level. Otherwise, when it comes to casting your vote, well, you're just going to have to accept whatever they serve. Well, there's okay. an old there's an old yeah. military saying, right, that comes from, uh, you know, at the end of sieges, uh, when the walls are finally breached, what the uh, generals would do is they would send in a forlorn hope, right, where where it was led by a junior officer and a sergeant and and a bunch of reprobates, and if they survived the battle. Then they were promoted, and then but they were called the forlorn hope because there was a, a very high chance that going through that breach they were never going to come back, and mm. that's what these minor parties are often are the forlorn hope who get mowed down as they go into the breach, uh, and you know I think what we've discussed today you know mm. we've we've been wide ranging we've gone from politics to health. Uh, back to politics and then into solutions for the future. Um, it requires these courageous discussions where we're unafraid to actually say what went wrong and try and rectify that. And, you know, people like yourself who have put themselves out there, had a website, you know, put your opinions out there. Uh, those are the people that we should be listening to, people like yourself, people like us here at Reality Check Radio, because we've got our head above the parapet. And, you know, but we need other people to join in that fight. And so, yeah, I, I've really enjoyed talking to you today about this. And, uh, you know, I'm pretty sure this is going to be one of the most replayed uh, interviews that I've had in a long time, too, because just because it's so wide ranging. Forlorn defeat or. Glorious and victory. Well, I prefer to look on things to be glorious and victory. No one likes coming second, right? You 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 used your sporting analogies and marathons. Does anyone ever remember who came second in the New York Marathon in 1988? Nobody does, yeah. right? Or yeah. or who won the silver medal in any of the Olympics for marathons? Nobody remembers them, right? So glorious victory. <laughs> For those in the know, we know that for there to be a victor, there must be others. Many, many, many losers. They, yep, there's many, many losers, and there's um, and and there's there's um, there, there's nothing to be ashamed of or to be depressed about by not winning. But um, you've got to give it a go. Absolutely, yeah. the icing on the cake. 
Yeah. And it is an, it's an extremely rare um, experience for the vast majority of us. But, um, uh, you know, uh, look, um, uh, I've spent my entire life getting beaten. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've been winning lately. I've been winning lately, but it's mainly because I've I waited for all my opposition to die off. <laughs> well, I mean that's the thing, isn't it? You, you you wear them down. It's like you know people keep yeah. you know, said to me, you know, you're irrelevant or that, and yet the people who are saying that are the ones who are listening. Okay, so, I'm, I'm I'm doing a Winston, or maybe Winston's doing a Gary. Hey, eh? yeah. he's following me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, on that note, Gary, nice. thank you so much for thank coming you. on The Crunch. I really appreciate your time. That's a pleasure. I really seem to get distracted sometimes, and I did it again with Gary, because we ranged far and wide in the interview, and it's something that I do these days. But I find it energizing and invigorating to discuss lots of different topics. He's a fascinating and thoroughly likable bloke. And it was a real pleasure to discuss health, nutrition, politics, and the lost opportunities with him today. Don't forget to send comments on Gary's interview to inbox at realitycheck.radio or text to 2057. This is The Crunch with Cam Slater. Conversations with a side of controversy right here on RCR.